Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. The Democratic Socialists of America have blown up over the last two or three years. They have quadrupled, if not uh, sextupled, their membership over the past three or four years. Since Donald Trump was elected, of course, Bernie Sanders catalyzed a movement that was already underway since my time in the socialist movement, starting prior to Occupy, into Occupy, the fight to save Troy Davis's life, into Black Lives Matter, the movement of the squares, the sovereign debt crisis, other various upsurges in places like Madison, Wisconsin, and elsewhere. And Madison, Wisconsin is the place where my guest today currently resides. He was active in the anti-Scott Walker protest, the occupation of the state house back in uh, 2012. Is that right? 2011. 2011, even earlier. Yeah. Andrew Sernatinger, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we're going to be talking about the DSA convention that's about to happen this weekend. It is now Wednesday. I'm going to get this out first thing Thursday morning. And many people will be wondering what the hell is going on with this convention. It seems to be a really important and pivotal moment in the maturation, if you will, of DSA. A tremendous amount of change was implemented in the 2017 convention. Uh, prior to that, DSA was a very different kind of organization. And Andrew, you have written a series of articles. You're one of the few people who are writing on this in the lead up to the convention. So I thought it was... Uh, imperative to bring you on to talk to my audience and uh, explain just what the hell is going on with DSA. So let's start there. DSA, what is this organization now and, and how far have they come? Yeah, so I owe kind of like a intellectual debt to Dan Labatz, who attended the 2017 convention. And back then, like my experience with DSA was like, this was a different kind of organization. It was like a paper organization. It was something that I just I never saw it active at all, right? And so when all of a sudden this thing starts blowing up, you're like, is this for real? And um Dan went to the 2017 convention and his his to me, one of his biggest contributions was to point out this is basically a new organization now, right? Like you've got all these people that have flocked since Bernie Sanders, and in 2017 the membership was twenty five thousand. At that time we thought that was huge. Now we're close to sixty thousand. But um his his idea was, well, this is it's a new organization now, right? Like we're not talking about the same DSA. So now we gotta start evaluating it like there's a whole new socialist group in the United States. Um, it's based off of stuff that's happened already, right? It's like living in someone else's skin, kinda, right? Yeah, I think that, that that's kind of the starting place, is that we're gonna to look at this like a whole kind of new organization has started that um we gotta we got to start thinking about what is the collective experience of 25,000 people who have just kind of come together and how are they, how are we really building something that's going to contribute to a larger socialist movement in the United States? So that's kind of the starting spot. With that being said, it is a brand new organization, but the people who have spent the last, I don't know, uh, three or four decades in it, many of them haven't gone anywhere. They're sticking around and they comprise a pretty strong and, and rooted 
certainly rooted element inside the national organization and, and, in, and in various chapters. They hold seats at the uh, the governing body, the national governing body of DSA, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Um, so talk to us a little bit about that transformation in 2016-2017. What spurred it along? And of, of all the organizations, I don't think any of us would have guessed. I think you you mentioned this in, in the intro to one of your pieces that you published in uh, New Politics. I'll link to those in the show notes, of course. You mentioned and echoed my my feeling at the time of all of the socialist organizations that existed at the time. Why the fuck was it DSA that that benefited so immensely from this from this upsurge? That would have been the last one if you had asked me, you know, in 2013, 14. So, yeah, definitely. So definitely. why DSA? So I think like my suggestion was that the reason why DSA was best suited to like be the place where all this new activity is happening is really a lot more because of what it isn't than what it is, right? So like most socialist organizations in the United States are what you'd call like a cadre group, right? Which is it requires like a a pretty intense commitment to activity, right? You have to like sign on to like an ideological understanding of the world um, and put in a lot, right? Resources, you're paying probably high dues, you're you're making this part of your whole life. And DSA is not that, right? Like DSA is, um, it's flexible in the sense that it's pretty easy to join, right? Like you sign up online, the dues are like 45 bucks in your first year. So like you're talking less than $5 a month. So it's pretty easy for you to kind of step in and say like, let's try this out. And really importantly too, is that DSA was the only group that didn't, uh, didn't rebuke Bernie Sanders when he first ran in 2015-2016. So DSA had people that were kind of around Jacobin Magazine and were all about, you know, Bernie Sanders. And I think most of the socialist movement in the United States, like, thought that this was not not the way forward. And um, for better or for worse, kind of have had to readjust to a new reality and DSA was in the best position because DSA just dove right into the Sanders campaign. And so then um, all these people that get excited around Bernie Sanders find DSA and uh, it's easy to get into. So you you um, you find this organization that's able to just like soak up all these people and it starts to balloon larger and larger. And uh, by merit of it getting so big, then other people want to join because that's where the action's happening. So that, that I think, is kind of the starting place for how DSA works. What role did Jacobin play there? Because I know as a former member of one of those socialist organizations, a much smaller socialist sect, if you will, that no longer exists, the ISO, um, you know, Jacobin was a welcome addition to the very small at the time online discourse, if you will. But they were sort of seen as softy social Democrats. And the line in all of the revolutionary socialist groups at the time, ah, yeah, you know, this Bernie Sanders guy, he's kind of a whack job from Vermont. He calls himself a socialist. He's a fake socialist. He doesn't really believe in anti-capitalism the same way we do. He's not a revolutionary. And uh, essentially, he's a fraud. Uh, How do you get from that posture to and, and many of those same people who were who were towing that line to their but to their credit I should say I don't mean to denigrate those people to their credit they've had a come to Jesus moment a come to Bernie moment 
and they've seen the radical potentials in these politics. But Jacobin seemed to be really kind of leading the way here. Talk about some of the forces that converged to make that happen, just to kind of explain this to people, that kind of prehistory of this moment that we're sitting in right now. Yeah. So like, I, I think like maybe part of the the thing with other socialist groups was that, um, you know, they were suited uh, for a different situation in a lot of ways. And it's hard to kind of understand how history envelops when you're in it, right? Like um, my whole adult life, right? The Democratic Party was a neoliberal party. It's, I mean, it still is a neoliberal party, but yeah. it, the idea that you could get anything out of it, that like there was even a, a potential to run somebody that would call themselves a socialist, you know, however their politics actually line up, was just like kind of unthinkable. So um, most of the socialist groups in the U.S. were like, um, attuned to that kind of dynamic. And as things have kind of changed after the crisis in 2007, 2008, it's been hard to keep up with how fast um, politics is changing. But uh, anyway, but I mean, you asked about Jacobin and the thing about Jacobin, I think in a lot of ways is um, it, it's, it's a really savvy magazine. You know, it start, it's got a good tone. It's kind of playful, right? It's not nearly so stodgy as a lot of socialist things are. Um, and it, it wasn't officially attached to any formation, but, you know, the people that were working on Jacobin were more or less around DSA. So as Jacobin got more popular and people were like, you know, this is legit and, you know, maybe I, I'm not sure what I think of Sanders, but I'll, I'll entertain it or whatever. Um, it kind of helped guide them to DSA as, uh, as time went on. It's hard to explain to people what that moment felt like if they didn't live through it. I mean, even, you know, the dirtbag left Chapo Trap House when they first came on the scene, right? Uh, Twitter left Twitter as nasty as it could be. There was, there was this, uh, it was just a moment, uh, this euphoria that kind of took over, uh, as certain generations, I would say, or were more prone to them than others. It's sort of downwardly mobile millennials who just expected to eat shit for their whole lives. Some of us have been beating our heads against the wall trying to make radical social and political and economic change happen uh, to no avail. And and suddenly out of nowhere, here comes this this old guy from, you know, from from Brooklyn spouting the the wonders of of democratic socialism. There were a lot of changes that happened inside the organization in 2017 in that convention. So talk to us about that moment, kind of what it was like, what it felt like and then spell out some of the changes that happened in 2017 at the DSA convention, which will kind of set the tone for, for this latest convention that's coming up next week. Yeah. So, um, so if you accept the idea that like, okay, you got basically a new organization and they're kind of having their first convention in a lot of ways, but they're not starting from scratch, right? Like it's like your parents die and they leave you the house and you're like, um, how much of this do I want to keep and how much should I tear down? Right. Um, that, that's kind of, uh, maybe a good way to start off thinking about what, what DSA has had to deal with. So people come in and they see things like, um, like DSA historically has been affiliated to the socialist international, right? Like, and, um, if you don't know, like, that's great. It's like the, the legacy of the second international from like a hundred and, you know, 12 years ago or whatever, but it, it, uh, it really more is just like an association of neoliberal parties that um, call themselves social Democrats or whatever. So all these new DSA people are like, nope, got to go like that. That's not where we want to be. 
And I think like those people in a lot of ways saw something in DSA that others like, like myself, honestly, were like, ah, that's not my kind of thing. I mean, these guys are associated with like politics like this. And instead they, they had um, the good sense to be like, we can change this around and turn this into a vehicle for, for other kinds of politics. Right. So that was a big one. Another one was changing um, our international scope. Right. So uh, the 2017 convention also um, the 2017 convention also voted to endorse boycott, divest, and sanction, right, in support of uh, Palestinian liberation, which is a pretty huge deal, right? I mean, like in a lot of ways, you're setting yourself up against um, an entire institution in the United States and across the world, right? So that's a big change, and I think it it gave some signal that like this isn't the same kind of like let's appeal to progressive bureaucrats organization that a lot of us thought DSA had been. And um, so, so that kind of starts to open up this idea that maybe this, this is something for real. Right. And um, I mean, I know I joined after the convention because I was like, okay, yeah, there's people going on there and yeah, I, I could live with that. So, um, that said, right, the, the problem being that for such a new organization, there's not a, a clear mandate that comes out of the 2017 organization, right? There's a lot of optimism and like, just like people are celebrating this sense of like coming together and having such a large socialist convergence. So what they end up doing is electing a national leadership on the National Political Committee, that's the MPC. Um, and it's, it's kind of divided almost equally three ways, right? A third go to a slate called Praxis, a third go to another slate called Momentum, and the last third goes to what you would call like the old guard of DSA, people that had been around for the last 20, 30 years before that. Um, they had a slate called something like Unity Through Diversity. But um, what's more important is that that makeup means that there isn't like one thing that the convention says, this is what we're doing. They're like, everybody seems great kind of. And, um, you know, we don't know. So let's, let's move it through, um, for the next two years like this. So that's a nice overview of the past two years. Clearly we can't possibly encapsulate everything that every chapter has been up to all of the successes, all of the failures, all of the, the, the missteps, the growing pains, the maturation that's, that, that's happened. I've been really impressed with the, the speed at which some of these people who were kind of wishy-washy Bernie bros, right? Of all genders, of course, uh, the way that they have very quickly become skilled and, and careful and experienced and very savvy, you know, uh, strategic, like strategic thinkers about politics. And, and I've been studying social strategy and the history thereof for a very long time. And, you know, and, and I, and I run up against like, I don't know, like a computer programmer who worked on the Javanka Beckles campaign or whatever in San Francisco and then participated in the Oakland teacher strike. And they're talking strategy in a really grounded, concrete way that just blows me the fuck away. Like there isn't, there aren't enough textbooks in the world to transfer that kind of real, uh, uh, you know, street, street level knowledge. And so, you know, we've, been, we've kind of been taking that trip through the, uh, this, you know, through the school of hard knocks, if you will. I, I'm just going cliche after cliche, Andrew. I'm going to stop now. Uh, <laughs> school <laughs> of hard, they went through the school of hard knocks, man. They, they, uh, they, they sowed their oats, uh, the sweat of their brow. You know how it's been. It's been a really exciting and sometimes difficult and arduous time. Um, 
But here we are in 2017. Those three sections that you just laid out in the, the 2017 convention have transformed in this in, in the interim. The questions have changed. Let's start before we talk about the the major issues in the caucuses in 2019. I think we might speculate on what has changed in a really profound way, but isn't so much remarked on because it's just kind of been registered as the new common sense, if you will. I'm thinking about like our relationship to the Democratic Party, our comfort with open socialists running on Democratic Party ballot lines, things like that that were really contentious matters in 2017 are just now kind of registered in the status quo. What are some of those main uh, themes for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, in general, I think that DSA is moving as an organization together in in broad agreement, right? So like the idea that you would think of anybody running as an open socialist in like 2014 was really like, yeah, no, that would be great, but it's not happening. And now like our new reality is that we've had multiple successful candidates. So now we're not talking about it in a hypothetical, but it's like when more of this happens, what are we going to do, right? So like that is kind of, it's moved the needle pretty far to the left. Um, same thing is true with labor, right? Like we've been dealing with like a, a labor retreat for like 45, 50 years, something like that. And uh, we've seen through these last two years, the wave of teacher strikes across um, what's been called like the red state revolt, uh, places where you didn't expect to see a labor upsurge. And it's kind of changed our idea of how how we're going to see a working class fight back. So that has also changed, right? Like we're not we're not using a model of um, progressive union leaders so much as um, bottom up organizing from uh, the rank and file, who many of them are actually socialists themselves, and that's that's the place to be. So like those are two real big changes, I think. Yeah, yeah. I just think it's important to mark the changes that have occurred that are now not really that contentious anymore. I don't really see anybody arguing. You know, at least not with any degree of seriousness that, you know, open socialists running on Democratic Party ballot lines is something that, you know, we should categorically reject because we've had so much success there, for example. I mean, uh, and it's it's to some extent it's limited success, right? Like, yeah. I think like some people are right to point out that like this hasn't been like, you know, a super huge wave where like the party's like going to fall apart. But I, I think it is important to say that like – um that an alternative to neoliberalism has been blocked for like 30, 40 years. And even a few candidates have had an enormous political impact, right? And so I think that um, DSA members agree that whether or not you think the Democratic Party is terrible, that we, we've benefited from, um, from some of these kind of left candidates running in the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. In a way, practice has really clarified the real stakes of matters as, you know, hey, we're good materialists. That shouldn't come as a surprise to any Marxist. Let's move along here. Let's run through some of these caucuses and caucus-like bodies. First of all, you had a really interesting uh, a really interesting comment or contribution in one of your pieces about, like, what is a caucus? What's its role here? It's kind of a – I think you call it something like a convention vehicle. Explain that to people so that we don't sort of get too bogged down and – and, you know, this really overly adversarial way of talking about caucuses in the way that they are or are not sort of uh, really strongly defined. Yeah. So, like, now we're dealing with DSA that is saying that we're like 60,000 members, right? Like, you're not going to have an organization where individuals are like super um, capable of influencing the organization anymore. 
So you have to self-organize within DSA uh, if you want your your idea, your vision for the organization to to have some sway, right? So that makes objective sense. It's not like there's some like nefarious plot that's happening. Um, there's like a little bit of discussion about whether someone wants to call themselves a caucus or a not caucus caucus is kind of my joke, right? Because like in the end, the effect is the same, right? Whether you want to say you're a caucus or a network or an association, like if you're getting people together and you're talking about DSA and a common vision and you're trying to influence the group, that's what matters, right? So there are like five or six of those on the national scene right now. And a lot of people are like, well, I don't really deal with that in my chapter. Like, why does that matter? Um, but going into this convention, right? Like these are formations that are, are looking at convention and trying to see how are we going to, how are we going to win some positions that we think are important for DSA? And in reality, they form the majority of the candidates for the NPC. They've put up the majority of resolutions and proposals uh, for the convention to consider. So it, it's useful to kind of understand why they are doing what they're doing, right? Like, it's not just like a club of friends or whatever. Like, they're people that have a common assessment of what's happening, and they want to see that go together. And um, part of why I wrote stuff about it is because I think that that's an important democratic question, right? Like, um, democracy isn't just like being able to vote on something. You need to understand it. You have to have access to the information. And um, it's been a little bit my concern that that's not as transparent as it should be right now in DSA. Yeah, I share that concern with you. It was really the, the impetus for me getting on the show in the first place. I don't know why it is the case, but in 2017, if people weren't around for that, if they were, they'll certainly remember that representatives from all these caucuses went on every major podcast at the time. And there's some podcasts that aren't even around anymore that they went on. And I, I believe there were some people from, there was a member from, I believe, Praxis and Momentum that went on Chapo, for God's sakes, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, you know, that seems odd now because Chapo doesn't really wade into these kind of like, you know, uh, organizational political matters anymore. I don't know if they've gotten too big for their britches or they're just making so much fucking money. Like, what do they care? Uh, that's another conversation. But that's just to say that, I, I mean, I haven't seen any representatives from these caucuses or non-caucus caucuses show up really anywhere meaningful to argue their case outside of the publications that they're all uh, putting out there, which it's very, it's commendable. I'm impressed. As a guy who tries to run a website and 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 manage social media, I'm like, who the fuck are these people? And how can I get money to hire them to do my my work for me? Because they're doing a hell of a job. You know, they all have websites that look fantastic. They all have social media projects. Some some of them are putting out videos, you know, uh, audio productions. Um, it's it's really impressive what they're doing internally. But I share your concern that for all of that internal propagandizing, there isn't a more kind of. Um, you know, I, God damn it. I'm going to regret this. But dare I say like a, a, the fourth estate of the socialist enterprise, right? This kind of <laughs> – fuck, I hate this already. I'm going to go with it. This kind of more neutral, relatively neutral collective space wherein people come together from these various caucuses and talk to one another for a public, right? Whether they be socialist, progressive, in, inside DSA, outside DSA or or whatever. Um, why do you think that's the case? Why do you think things are different this time around? I mean, I think like the stakes are a little bit different, right? Like in 2017, people really 
like didn't have a sense that like talking about something was going to have negative consequences, right? Like everybody was like, yeah, let's do it. Like every idea is a good one and it's, you know, it's good times all around. I mean, like that's maybe simplifying it a little bit, but I, I think in general, the tone is, has been pretty different, right? Like with a really new organization, um, your, your frame of reference is going to be different than one that's had about two years of pretty intense experience and now there's some conflict over what's going to be the direction, right? And I think that the formations that have appeared are trying really hard not to make any missteps. And the unfortunate reality of that means that they're not saying a lot that they're not controlling themselves, right? So, um, so th- that's been like my concern is that like everything that comes out is something that's been like vetted, right? And, yeah, um, right. And, you know, and, and for the majority of people in this organization, right, I'd say like probably nine out of 10 people are not affiliated to any caucus, right? Um, they have no fucking idea what's going on. And, uh, and, and you can't really have a sense of like perspective about what matters. And, uh, you know, everything is like, um, everything ends up being kind of like, where's the truth? Like, you know, if you feel like everybody is a partisan, then you don't really know, um, who you can trust. And so I think like maybe that's a little bit of the deficit that we're dealing with in DSA right now is like figuring out like who, um, who cares about moving the organization forward in a way that, I mean, let me, let me restate that. I think maybe the problem is that people have a distrust right now that they can't really take people at face value for what they're saying. And, um, and shit, I don't know, man. You're gonna have to cut around that because I fucked that up good. I kind of know what you're. I kind of know what you're getting at. If you want to kind of make that a little bit uh, more plain, I'll 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 go ahead and throw it out there. Um. Yeah, I mean, I I think that like th- people are being really careful to control their message because there's um, a fair amount of distrust and. So I think that they they want to make sure that they're not being blasted for saying the wrong thing, right? So they're being really careful to curate their message. And unfortunately for like most people who are like onlookers in DSA don't really know how to how to judge that, right? Like it's hard to get a perspective. And I think that there is like a need for some kind of anchor or whatever like using fact and you know whatever metrics we have to be able to say like this is what did happen and i'm not going to get into all of the subjective of like this person's a bad person or whatever like that that that's kind of missing right now in dsa yeah i agree there's a democratic deficit if what is what i'll 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 take responsibility for that term you don't have to co-sign but i think there's a democratic deficit and and there's a chilling effect that's happened since 2017 I you know I, I certainly am going to keep confidential the names. I'm not going to bla- put them on blast on my show, and I'm not even going to give any hints as to who they might be and who what what caucuses or formations they might be affiliated with. But I've asked multiple people to come on uh, to join us or to have a separate chat about their can, their caucus or their proposals or what have you. And these are great people, I, you know, from from various factions that are opposed to one another. Um, but they they all sort of have the same idea, which is either one, I don't really want to speak for my caucus because I don't really feel like I you know I, I can do that. Which I, I think that's a good impulse, right? People mm-hmm. want to they don't want to represent a collectivity. They want to be accountable to people. So I think that's a step in the right direction, right? Because there's this kind of like um, sort of all t- hyper autonomous kind of 
um, uh, volunteer, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, adventurism in terms of being opposed to organizational discipline that I think is, could be really destructive. Um, so it's, it's nice to see a little bit of organizational discipline. Like who knew, right? Like my biggest critique of the old left, the old revolutionary left is it was too much organizational discipline. But I think what we saw in 2017, 18 is when there's zero organizational discipline. It's a shit show. And so it's nice to see at least within these caucuses, there is some accountability to your comrades, right? Um, but the downside of that is I think you, you touched on it very well, which is like people aren't being, people aren't coming out on a quote neutral platform, such as my own or anybody else's, and then forced to answer questions that they themselves didn't write. You know, they're not, they're not tossing themselves softballs to, to nail out of the park on their own websites. Um, yeah, and I, I agree. I mean, with you. I, that makes some sense, right? I mean, like, I don't know what that venue would be if I were to think about it, right? Like, yeah. you named Jacobin before, um, but some people feel like Jacobin is fairly partisan, and I think that they have been weary of stepping into these kinds of debates because they don't really want to lose um, their audience for sake of getting into organizational politics, right? Um, DSA's own internal stuff, like it's a lot of political control over who's um, who's editing Democratic left or whatever, and you don't want to piss off the people that you're working with. So, like, it, it's it's kind of a, a tough egg to crack here um, in terms of figuring out like who is got enough autonomy that they can, you know, make some decisions and be okay to piss some people off if that's what's required. But also, they're not just kind of going it alone, right? Like, they care enough about what the stakes of the debate are that they're not just going to be, like, trying to score for one team, right? Yeah, I think that's very well said. You know, I don't pretend that DPS is a neutral outlet. It's not. And I would totally understand why people from all spectrums wouldn't want to come on here. Uh, People who both agree with me and people who despise me. So I certainly don't mean to suggest that I'm I'm, I'm not playing that role. I just think it's a damn shame the left doesn't have a role like that. I've said it myself. I think DSA needs to take the media shit way more seriously. They've got money. They've got resources. I think they need to to take uh, podcasts and small outlets like myself under their wing, run them as a sort of collective party enterprise. I'd fucking love to see that. But that's where, look, we're so far from that, like – you know, that's a, that's a pipe dream. Uh, that's, but that's the kind of thing that we would need in order to, to produce the, the kind of like, God, I'm going to say a, uh, dialogue. <laughs> it's scare quotes, the kind of dialogue that we would need inside of this organization in order for us to really come together and learn how to debate in good faith um, our ideas, right? In meaningful and productive ways. Yeah. I mean, I, like, you know, it, it would be interesting a little bit to uh, to look at kind of the the socialist party, like the Debsian socialist party for like how their media structure worked. Cause there were hundreds of papers and periodicals and stuff and they weren't necessarily party organs or whatever. So, you know, it's a different model. And I think it's, it's something that people that come out of a certain tradition of the left are having to, to reinvestigate, like what's our media strategy. So I think it's an important democratic question for sure. Yeah, this is somewhat tangential, but it's related because I think the the relative chill that we've seen in terms of cross 
caucus communication can be boiled down to all of this. This is really great context. I'm glad we went there. Kind of off the cuff. We weren't planning on doing this, but we're getting deep into the episode now. Let's go ahead and rail off some of these caucuses and non-caucus formations as we go. Just kind of we're going to do a quick run through and then we'll put them into uh, a comparison. We'll contrast and compare the agendas and the proposals of each. So you started with the old guard. The old guard has been with the organization since the late sixties in, in, in various forms, early Harringtonites. They are now in the golden years of their lives, but they are staying true to the cause. Uh, where, where do you find the old guard? Where, where are they represented in this convention? So right now, right, like the, the part of the problem sometimes in trying to understand these things is people think that there is like a one-to-one translation, right? Like here's the old thing and it became this. And it's like, that's never exactly true. Like people yeah. leave, new people come in, whatever. Like the, the context is different. But that said, right, a lot of the old guard is identified with a formation called North Star Caucus, right? So, um, they have like a fairly traditional approach to the Democratic Party, which is like um, defeat Republicans no matter what, right? Like if that means that we have to elect some neoliberal Dems, so be it. The most important thing is like pushing back against the right. Um, that that kind of is like their defining um, perspective. They have, you know, an array of different ideas also. Like they tend to be more, um, more in favor of like the – like alliance with progressive union official approach to labor work too. But I don't think like that's as big a deal. Um, A lot of those people are not like, I don't think that they, they feel like North star is the best vehicle to accomplish that. So like they, they use it for their own, you know, purposes, but most of them are housed under another larger formation called socialist majority caucus or SMC. And um, that's a convention formation that is a little confusing, right? Because it's not necessarily ideologically coherent, but it's a it's a convention vehicle, right? Where people that um, had a lot of experience with DSA, um, some of them were former national leaders, right? People that had been on the NPC or been part of national working groups. There's definitely people who had been on staff. And in my experience, people who are in staff for an organization tend to be very politicized and highly opinionated about what direction they need to go for the organization. And um, so they have this idea, I think, very much about what the problems with DSA organizationally is right now, right? Like that they generally think like DSA has been on the right track, right? There's some, there's some kinks to work out. Um, but they don't want to see us um, take too hard of a position in any one direction. Um, so they like the flexibility around elections. Like I think that they're they're open to running as open socialists, but they also believe that that shouldn't be a minimum, right? Like they're they're worried about context. Um, so that that's an important development, right? Is that there, you've got a fairly large formation that's trying to make sure that. We continue to have a functioning national organization, but that it remains flexible enough that um, that we can a- adapt to new developments in the next couple of years. 
Well said. I suspect this caucus uh, convention formation will not dissolve, you know, in any negative sense. But it, like I said, this is a convention vehicle comprised of a number of people who are not necessarily ideologically uh, coherent, as you, as you mentioned. And we'll talk about what that means going forward. Um, so let's let's compare and contrast some of these other people. Bread and Roses is another caucus that is um, has a, a fair amount of continuity coming out of 2017, as you mentioned. They're an explicitly Marcus caucus, and they descend from the 2017's Momentum slate. Talk to us about Bread and Roses. Yeah, so they formed in a lot of ways to like cohere what the work Momentum had done was right. So like some of them, uh, some of the people that were in Momentum, like were happy to just kind of be done with uh, with internal politicking. But I think a lot of them were like, there's a space for explicitly Marxist organizing, and it's important to try to push DSA in some important ways. So I think maybe the two um, defining political positions they have are um, uh, they put a, together a resolution called class struggle elections that tries to set out some minimums about how we're going to approach um, doing electoral work. And it's um, it's based around this concept called the dirty break, right? Which is that um, you're, you're aiming for an independent workers party, but given how the United States works right now, you can't just start that um, and, and piece together piece it together out of whole cloth, like you're going to have to work within the Democrats and then try to break off um, the wing that you've, that you've built in doing your electoral work on the left to form a new party. Right. Like that's a, that's a big part of their orientation. It's a fairly specific strategy that not everybody necessarily shares, but you know, it's a, it's a coherent one. The other one that they have, that's an important part of um, their their platform is the rank and file strategy as part of a labor program, which is a, an orientation to the labor movement, which um, I, I think it's been a little bit unfairly represented as narrow, right? Like in a lot of ways, it's it's like the traditional socialist approach to the American labor movement. Like that kind of starts with um, with William Foster and the like communist movement in the twenties, but. Um, whatever it doesn't matter so much what's more important is like there's an approach to working as um worker activists within unions as much as you can trying to push for more militancy and um and have a like a a stance towards the union bureaucracy that's critical right like you understand that there's a conservative element there that needs to be reformed so that way unions can fulfill their potential um, and in you know recent history, that that in a lot of ways is what these teachers' strikes have kind of looked like, right? Is that um, you see like a fairly conservative union structure that gets pushed from below by uh, by teacher activists, and I think that that that's kind of what they're suggesting DSA's labor work should look like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We'll talk much more about that labor proposal in the, in the coming minutes here after we lay out the rest of the caucuses and formations. The next one that has a tremendous amount of continuity from 2017 is Build. Uh, what's up with Build and where, where do they descend from? So there was a um, convention slate in 2017 called Praxis, right? It, it got put together pretty quickly. But like base building was kind of the key word that they used a lot. Um, but in the like, you know, inside baseball kind of approach to DSA, what ended up happening was you got a third, a third and a third of the leadership. And they're kind of, um, you know, they're jammed up in terms of what they're going to do. 
and Praxis ends up falling apart, right? They have some internal troubles and become the minority on the NPC. And so I think that they decided that the best way to get their their perspectives out was to to start this new project called Build, which is a like zine publication thing. And uh, what they try to do is highlight the work that locals are already doing and share that with one another. Um, and you know, and that's useful. Uh, but my criticism would be that that's kind of become their world look, right? Is that that's the only thing that DSA really needs to be doing. So, you know, the quote that I, that I pulled from their materials is we believe that the national organization's troubles are the direct results of escalating factionalism, personal attacks, and a zero sum approach to internal political differences. So that's kind of informed their decentralized approach in a lot of ways. And they actually, they, they're, much more active than meets the eye, I think, right? Like they, they're the original, not caucus caucus in terms of saying like, Oh, we're, we're not like those other things, but they have, um, I think the most NPC candidates of any formation. So that's significant. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk much more about that here in just a moment. Once we get through all the caucuses, here's another, well, actually, let's let's start with a, an actual caucus caucus. It's one of the earliest caucuses. It represents, to be fair, a, a pretty uh, kind of proud and longstanding tradition in the communist movement. Uh, that is the Libertarian Socialist Caucus, or LSC. What are they all about? Um, so it's kind of weird that they're officially a caucus because in a lot of ways they're like a like a network or it, it's more like like a, a label you put on yourselves in a lot of ways they're not disciplined in terms of like really putting their members out on stuff but they do you know try to keep a like a an association of people that have kind of anarchist or council communist views on on the organization mm-hmm. so but, but you do you do have to apply to be a member of the LSE if I'm not mistaken is that right I, yeah i guess you do yeah, yeah. Um, so so there is some kind of understanding at least internally of of a cohesion even though you're right to suggest they do represent. So I guess, you know, the question I would ask, sorry, I'm, I'm butting in here, but maybe no, this ahead. will help focus the discussion. What is it that unites these seeming, seemingly sort of divergent, um, you know, anarchists, council communists, autonomous Marxists, uh, quote, anti-authoritarian, uh, you know, socialists? What is it that unites this disparate group? Uh, on what basis, for example, might they, I don't know, deny your application to to the Libertarian Socialist Caucus? That would be a fun thought experiment, I guess. Yeah, that would be curious. I mean, I couldn't say. Um, I, I don't really know the internal workings like that. But um, I mean, I think generally, right, like, it's a little bit curious, like, why would anarchists or, you know, anarchist leaning people want to join a socialist organization? But I think that they're they're like a lot of people, right? They want to go where the action is. They see a lot of people that are joining DSA. And they're like, you know, I generally like the approach of the organization. That's where I want to go. Um, but I think that the thing that kind of unites them in a lot of ways is like this intense, um, skepticism of, uh, of representational bodies, right? Like, you know, the other quote that I pulled out from them is that governing authority is illegitimate in and of itself, right? So that, that presents uh, a stance that they take towards all of the national bodies. And they're very much like into trying to create like a, uh, this weird, like, assembly of locals under under like a like a brand name really more than a than an organizational structure yeah that seems about right um 
don't mean to denigrate that either. I, I myself on this show, people who were DPS listeners, it won't come as any surprise to, to, to them to, uh, when I suggest that I have some tremendous strategic and theoretical differences with the libertarian socialists. Um, but again, they want to be where the action is and they're inside a DSA. And even within the libertarian socialists, there's a lot of support for people like AOC and certainly Bernie Sanders. And so we're in a really odd moment where the prescriptions that are coming from people who call themselves anarchists and autonomous Marxists aren't exactly as uh, cohesive and orthodox as they used to be. And, uh, you know, uh, to an extent, I think we should be open to that, to see where where this all heads and where, where this is all leading. Um, to round out the group here, we've got a non-caucus caucus, Collective Power Network. What's that all about? They're not a caucus, so so what are they? Yeah, so so they also form kind of with a, a criticism of of how DSA's organizational structure works. Um, uh, some of the key people were also former staff, but you know that's not the only people. So I don't want to I don't want to downplay the the project, right? Like other people that are rank and file members are are sharing this vision. But um, they basically are like, DSA can't grow any more effectively if we're structured the way we are. So um, that's kind of how they started in a lot of ways, is trying to like promote um, these intermediary regional bodies and, um, and trying not to play into some of the national politicking. But, you know, they've also quickly developed really specific lines on, uh, on labor, for instance, right? Like, they are having this active debate with bread and roses about what the approach to labor work should be. And um, so, you know, I kind of argue that they're indistinguishable from a caucus structure, right? Like I think it's useful to say that you want to be more porous and allow people who agree with what you're doing to be able to come in and, you know, be part of it. But, but, you know, they, they put together proposals for the convention they have an NPC candidate. So, you know, if it looks like a duck, then, you know, you know the rest of it, so that rounds out all of the 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 large kind of active formations that are working together and cohesively. They got websites. They're doing collective propagandizing to try to get these delegates to vote in their their measures. Let's move forward now and compare and contrast them, and we can do this by way of talking about the proposals that they have both put forward and endorsed. Um. And let's let's talk about the proposals, and but not just sort of uh, you know a, a X's and O's model, just sort of listing things. And this one is proposed by this group, and that one mean this, and this is in conflict with that. Let's talk about each one, like we just did. Let's go back and talk about what is their vision for DSA, and and how do their proposals and their their actions, both in convention and their sort of their you know their collective materials they're putting out. Um, what does that vision look like? You know, let's, let's start with the, the, perhaps maybe the easiest one, because I don't know that they have a whole lot of contentious proposals out there. Socialist majority caucus, what's their vision for DSA and, and how are they working to achieve this? We've mentioned there, there's not a whole lot of ideological cohesion here. So this one might be a challenge. What do you think? Well, um, I think it's important to stress, like, you know, we, we can go over how all these different formations look and, w- and what they think that's different. But the most important thing that we really got to start with is that for the most part, there's there's really broad political agreement about what direction people want to see DSA going, right? Like, there's not people that are like Democratic Party never, right? Like, 
I think that um, even among people who are skeptical and that exists on a spectrum, people are like, Let, let's do what we're doing, right? Let's continue it. And, um, and and it's really a lot of difference in emphasis rather than kind, right? So so I, I do think it's helpful to point that out because, um, you know, if you don't know anything about this, it could look like, wow, this is a real fucking shit show. I don't want to be a part of it. But really, like, you know, for the most part, most of these folks are agreeing on the work that DSA should be doing. And, um, and, and my suggestion really is that the thing that's being debated among most of them, um, is actually what the organizational form of DSA should be, right? It's not, it's not like, uh, like you say left, I say right in terms of politics. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, let, let's do, um, let's be involved in the Sanders campaign, right? Like to the extent that you want to be, right? I think that people are agreeing on that. But I think that the, the thing that, is really going to define this convention is how are we going to approach the problems that people are perceiving um, with how DSA works in the last two years. So that way we can move forward with our political work in the next two years. Right. If I may just interject, I mean, that's, I'll co-sign that entirely. In fact, I mean, uh, it, it's important to, to put that front and center of this discussion because the reason why I, and I think you as well, Andrew felt it was important to have this, this episode to do this, have this chat and, and blast it out to five to 10, hopefully you know, 15, 20,000 listeners is because most people don't think that this is even important. Right. And, and, and they be, you know, to an extent, they kind of be right. Right. To the day to day activity of the chapters. Like this is really all kind of like operating at a, at a, at a, at a sort of above the ground up in the clouds sort of level. Now it has real consequences, but um, it's not really applicable to much of the work that's going on, you know, that's relevant to people in these chapters. And yet it's happening and it's going to have consequences. So we're talking about it so we can bring it, put it on your radar screen. So don't don't inflate this. This isn't like a, a cage match to the death. Uh, but let's start with Socialist Majority Caucus. Yeah. So I think that Socialist Majority in a lot of ways is really the like stay the course um, group in DSA right now. Right. Like they're like. Um, Labor, it's working. Um, elections, also working. We should do more of it, and uh, let's not let's not tie ourselves down to any one perspective. And, um, and you know, and they they want to make sure that um, that the national is able to to exist as a body that can coordinate, right? And I think that they have, in a lot of ways, some of the most modest proposals, right, of how we should fix some of these problems in DSA. But, but I think that if, if I were to guess which direction they'd want us to go, they'd say, what we're doing is good. Um, we got to figure out some of the funding problems so that way we have more resources for DSA to work with. Right. Um, and we got to make sure that people have, uh, more support at the local level without sacrificing our ability to coordinate. I think that that's, I mean, it's, Maybe it's a little abstract, right? So it, I don't think it looks all that different in a lot of ways. I think that it, it's saying like let's let's keep going down the road we're on, but um, let's address the things that need to be addressed. Good rundown. That was challenging because I said there's, there's there's not a lot of ideological um, cohesion there in that caucus, but but they're standing for stuff. Um, hey, if 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 you're in these caucuses or formations and you're like, hey, that's not what we think at all, come on the show. Here's an open invitation to anybody from any of these caucuses or formations to come on DPS and get a fair hearing. 
after the convention, of course, because it's hell. It's in, it's just in a couple of days time, but we, 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 are, we will try to be as fair as we, we can be going forward. Let's go in the order that we went last time. I believe we hit up uh, bread and roses. This one's easy and, and to their credit because they've put out a shitload of material, both on the call, which there was just kind of this formation that some of them put out that was very media savvy and put writing articles, uh, you know, in a, at a furious pace. And, and now in their current um, sort of the current version 2.0 here, Bread and Roses, um, what what's their vision? What's their vision for DSA? I mean, I, I think, um, you know, in a lot of ways, you're right. Like they're being really open about what they think. And um, and personally, I respect that, right? Like I, I appreciate when somebody's like, this is what I think, you know, agree, disagree. That's what I think. Um there's really not as much of that going on as I would really like there to be. But um, I, I think like, you know, um, their, their things are trying to make sure that the character of the work DSA does um, has like a, has a really solid foundation based off of uh, class politics, but also um, a good movement building approach. Right. So like, that that's highlighted in their approach to labor work, right. Where they're, they're saying like, the way that we are going to broaden out this organization is as worker activists connecting with existing worker activists that are not part of DSA. Um, so I think that they want to shift us in that direction, right? There, that, that that's, that's kind of um, a big part of their platform. And the other one being that the elections that we do should, um, should be sure to have, um, this, this ability to name enemies and to politicize the power structure, right? That, uh, they're specifically looking at elections, not in terms of like, uh, um, just a propaganda thing. I think that they, they totally want to win these things, but they want to make sure that the kinds of elections that DSA is backing is going to have, um, a consistent character that's going to be like, um, naming out that we are a working class organization, that there is a central fight happening between working people and capitalists and that, um, and, and that that needs to really be the through line. Right. So uh, that I think is, is a somewhat different approach, right? It's, it's asking DSA to be aspirational, right? Maybe more than other formations are suggesting, and, um, and I, I think ultimately, yeah, they want to see DSA kind of be a, a thing that can form an independent party, uh, in the United States at some point. Good stuff. We'll return to them and some of the proposals and debates that are going to be highlighted this weekend. Let's move to build. What is their vision for DSA? We've already mentioned that the, their way of going about um, debates and discussion is sort of presenting themselves as, um, somewhat unideological, anti-ideological, if you will. I don't know if that's correct. What's their vision for DSA and can we decipher that given their structure? Yeah. And let me own, first of all, that like, I got a lot of disagreements with build. Like, I don't want to present like my perspective as like the perspective. So if somebody disagrees with it, like, I, I hope that they, they say their thing and that this helps us get a, a better democratic understanding of what's happening in DSA. Um, but that said, I mean, I think that in a lot of ways they're like, um, DSA is really the sum of its parts, right? It's, it's what people are doing at the local level and the purpose of the organization is really to make a network of things that are 
that are happening at the local level and um, and that we should really be redirecting all of our resources to uh, foster all that kind of initiative. Um, that that's kind of in a lot of ways how it is, right? They, it's it's a decentralized model. It's kind of like um, it, it's assuming that all of the political production that's going to happen is going to be done by all the volunteer members of DSA, and that that's that's the road forward. Um, I mean, and I'll say I disagree with it, but that I think that that more or less captures it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on, on the face of it, it's kind of unobjectionable. I mean, yeah. I mean, so you're suggesting that the things that happen will be done by the people who do the things, right? Like, well, yeah, of course, stuff happens, mostly done by the people who do the stuff. And most of the people, percentage wise in the organization, are not on NPC. Or any other national body or in staff, but they are just regular volunteers in the chapters across various far flung places in the country. So, like, you know, like on the surface, there's a certain kind of unobjectionable aspect to it. But the implication is that there is no national coordination that is even perhaps legitimate in a sense, which which raises a lot of questions when you start thinking about people from this caucus sitting on the NPC the national governing body of the organization. And we'll come back to this in a moment, but you know, so what is, we're talking about the vision of these caucuses and I share your skepticism of build. And I'll tell you why there are a handful of people who already on, on the NPC from Praxis now build and a number of those people who are running to be on NPC again. And it reminds me, I just had to be honest, maybe this isn't, this is not charitable. I'll let them decide again, come on DPS, uh, debate me. I'll, I'll, I'll do so. Um, openly and charitably. It's, it, it feels a lot like the Tea Party representatives who swept into power in 2010. They openly proclaimed that they were occupying positions in the federal government to ensure that nothing happened there. Uh, that, was the, that was the plan, right? They were just sort of occupying the role of a congressperson to ensure that you know, they wouldn't do anything to expand or enact any sort of federal government initiatives. And it feels like, you know, what else could a build member do on NPC other than stymie the efforts to coordinate things at a national level? What, what is your take on that? Do you think I'm being fair in, in my concern there? And do they have some splaining to do in that regard? No, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a worthwhile question. Like uh, the, the problem is I try really hard not to personalize the politics and be like, oh, that person's a fucking asshole, right? Like, and that's the whole reason. Um, like yeah, I, I want to yeah. try to get an understanding of like, what is it you want to do and how does that make sense? Right. And, and I think like, if your objective is to say that basically we're like a, we're a network of locals, then what's the fucking point of wanting to be on the NPC other than to say that you want to purposely shrink the organization. And if that's what you want to do, then just say that. Right. So, so you know, it's, it's hard to say, like, you know, people have some suspicion and like, you know, like, I don't know, like, I don't want to, I don't want to stoke that fire necessarily, but I, I do think that it's worth asking, like, you know, like what's the point, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And again, you'll notice I didn't, I didn't mention any names. I could have, I know some of the people listening who know the inside baseball uh, will know the names. I didn't mention the names and I, I wasn't even sort of hinting at specific individuals. I think that's an, that's a question that should be fielded to or posed to the entire build 
slate that's running for NPC. If, if you don't think that NPC has a role to play in terms of coordinating the organization nationally, then why are you running for the national body that does that? And what do you plan to do there other than sort of stymie the efforts of other people who do think that you should do that? Um, and it's fine. If that's what you want to do, it's not illegitimate. Just say so. And uh, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this because it plays very, very <laughs> heavily in, in, in one of their key proposals and maneuverings. What's next? Uh, collective Power Network. What is their vision for DSA? This one could be challenging as well. Yeah, I mean, I think um, really the the big thing that they want to see is the formation of these like regional bodies for DSA that's going to be below the NPC but above the chapter level. Um, they they want to like fill out sort of the the links between chapters in a more formal way, right? And uh, and I think that they have like a democratic aspiration to them. Um, I mean, you know, like uh, I can tell you what I think about that at some other point, but but I think like that that being an important part of of saying like we need to have some. Um, I think that that really like they're they're really upfront contribution is that we're gonna have to we're gonna have to remake some of this organization if it's going to be the vehicle that's going to kind of carry some of the class work forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's really an organizational structural question. They, they'd like to see uh, regional, you know, regionally affiliated groups with, with more staffers, more organizers at the paid organizers at the national level, coordinating activity, you know, regionally and statewide. And I, you know, I, I would suspect that many of the formations would be um, on, on, on board with that. Even the build, caucus and the one that we're going to talk about next, the Libertarian Socialist Caucus, because even if they don't like, even if they wouldn't like to see those formations come up as formal DSA bodies, they themselves have produced informal networks that more or less accomplish the same thing, except without, you know, DSA's uh, relatively tremendous resources. And I think that's really at the heart of the past the hat resolution that that's kind of uh, the the uh, 800 pound elephant in the room, but we'll come to that in just a moment. Libertarian socialist caucus. What is their vision for DSA? I, I like, so libertarian socialists are, are definitely the most aggressive in terms of saying that the national organization needs to be kept under serious scrutiny. Like everything needs to be mega, mega transparent. Like nothing is legit unless like all of the minutes are out within like 20 minutes of the, of the meeting being done was like, you know, like I'm embellishing, but like, I think that's kind of the flavor of what you're getting at. Right. Is like, they, they really want to make the local, the prime site of all of the DSA administration, right? Like locals should do all of the membershiping, handle all the money to the extent that we have a national. It's really only just like, as this, um, necessary evil in a lot of ways. Right. Um, and they, they are saying like, uh, let's not make anybody do anything they don't want to do. And everything should be at the um, chapters really should be directing all of the work. And if it's persuasive, then it'll just spread. Right. Yeah. And again, along with builds sort of key stump argument or what have you, is that the libertarian socialists will say, you know, people came to DSA to do stuff that they care about. So why should an organization be telling people who want to do things not to do those things. No, no, no. You need to do these other things. And on the face of it, much like I just mentioned with build in a critical sense, like on the face of it, that's hard to argue with. Like, right. Like people should do the things that they care about. However, um, you know, you need to contend with the question of 
priority priorities, right? What are, how do we prioritize the things that we do? How do we unify collectively in order to be more successful? What are the levers uh, that we need to sort of press on together in order to produce an environment in which socialist politics will be more successful in the future? You know, I talk about non-reformist reforms on the show a ton. Uh, what are the things that we can do now that will make future larger battles more winnable? And these are the questions that, you know, the fucking right-wingers asked themselves in the 1970s and 80s in the, in the lead up to the neoliberal revolution. And I argue that we should be asking these things now. But but that's the fundamental pr- proposition that on it on the face of it is so seductive and commonsensical with the libertarian socialists that who are we? to be telling people not to do things, right? Like we should be supporting whatever activity that people want to partake in. Do you share my cri- criticism of that? And do you think I have that? Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the only thing that I would push back on is that, um, that the framing of that debate is meant to take you in a certain direction, right? Like right, yeah, when exactly. you ask the question in that way, you're saying, well, like, uh, oh, of course nobody should tell me what to do. And it's like, but I don't think that anybody's actually saying like DSA is going to direct all your activity and do that. Like that, that's not actually what's happening. So it's like kind of preying on an anxiety that people have. And, and, and I'm suspicious of that, right? Yeah, like, yeah. it I feels think, like, like a I'll, false choice you're suggesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think that that's the debate we're having really. And to like keep saying that, I think is it's, like when, at a certain point, I'm like, why are you doing that? Like nobody is saying like, this is the only thing that you can do. Um, I, I think like DSA is a really interesting organization. Um, and it's something that's really confusing for a lot of people that have experienced like in democratic centralist groups where you kind of commit to activity because you do have to really win people's hearts and minds to get them to, to, co- um, to participate in the activity of the organization, right? Like it's a volunteer group. You can come or go if you want. So you're going to vote with your feet, right? Like if, if you don't like it, you'll say, fuck it, I'm not coming back. So there's a lot of work you have to do to be able to make sure that you, you have kind of the consent of the members to go in a direction. So like on the face of it to say that like somebody is proposing that we do, you know, we take a real departure. I, I just don't think that's true. I don't see that happening. And, um, yeah, and I, and I think, uh, there's useful things to get out of it, right? Like I, I like the way that you're framing these in terms of questions, right? But sometimes I think, um, I think that they can hide more than they reveal, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to approach this in a good faith manner as I possibly can, which means posing questions the way that they themselves would pose them. Right. And then we can sort of tease out what we think about it. And again, you know, you're right. I wholeheartedly agree. It, it kind of reminds me if people watched the Democratic debates last night uh, when Jake Tapper kept sort of, uh, you know, ramming this this these obscene conservative talking points down the throats of, you know, primarily Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, you know, like, how much will you raise these middle class taxes when you implement Medicare for all? You know, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's like, wait a minute. You know, like you're suggesting from the outset that I, that I'm, I do or I believe this thing or this thing is what's happening when, you know, I don't, I, I reject your premise. Um, it's, it's, tr- it's troublesome. Let's just, let's leave it there. We'll come back to the LSC in just a Pardon the interruption, everybody. I hope you're enjoying today's chat with Andrew Sernatinger. We're talking about DSA's convention, and the delegates are headed to Atlanta right now as we speak. 
I myself, I'm going to be driving about eight hours to Atlanta to cover the convention, to chat with people, to get some audio podcasts, hopefully get some good uh, video interviews as well to share with you guys in the weeks to come. And as I mentioned throughout this interview, it's really important that we have a robust and well-resourced socialist media ecosystem. We've got some real gaps there, and I'm just one guy, uh, but I'm doing my best to try to fill those gaps along with a couple of other inspired podcasters and journalists and media types. But I can't do this without your generous support. So become one of the 400 some odd patrons of the Dead Pundit Society and DPS Media and support this project today. If you like what you hear this week and you're a listener, I don't know, maybe you've benefited for some weeks now. Maybe you've been a listener for months. Maybe you're an OG going back two and a half years to the beginning of DPS. If that's the case, I urge you to head over to www patreon.com slash dead pundits and become a member of the society today. Not only will you be supporting the new left agenda and this robust and budding socialist media ecosystem, but you'll get access to our weekly B-sides, which will be resuming starting next week. We've been on a little bit of a hiatus the last couple of weeks. I moved to another city among many other things and my recording equipment has been living in boxes in the back of moving vans. But we're going to get that started next week after I return from Atlanta. So patrons, look out for that. If you're not yet a patron and you want to support this project, I really urge you to do so. If you're thinking about, if you've been thinking about, hey, I I should become a patron of DPS at some point. I really like what they do. I want to support it and make sure that it keeps keeps trucking along. Um, As I mentioned in a couple other funding pitches in past episodes, you know, the continuation of this project is not a foregone conclusion. This has to be a financially viable enterprise, unfortunately, in our capitalist society for me to be able to continue doing this on a weekly basis. So if you've been thinking about becoming a patron for some time, head over to patreon.com slash deadpunnets and subscribe today. All right, back to the show. We've we've had we've got a rundown of all the caucuses now. We've talked about what their vision for DSA uh, is or what it might be. Let's talk more explicitly about some of the proposals and some of the main, I want to say controversies, uh, but the main things that are going to be somewhat contentious this weekend for the delegates who are going to be there. And and uh, there's going to be a lot of people jockeying for votes and trying to win people over to various proposals. And I've had some delegates contact me and said, Adam, help. I'm a delegate this, this week. Uh, I stay up on this stuff as much as I possibly can, but much of this stuff is I don't really understand the context. Like, help me here. So let's let's help the delegates and, and the membership and the, the public at, at large understand what's what's actually being uh, debated. Um, what are some of the key debates and proposals that you see uh, coming up here? Yeah. So so my argument has been that um, that really the main debate is going to be about the form that DSA takes coming out of this convention. Um, and I say that not because it's like that's my my thought. Um, when you count how many resolutions there are. Half of them, half of the 87 some proposals are about the form DSA takes and some changes that need to be happening. So, you know, clearly that's that's where people are thinking about things and it's going to have to get resolved in one way or the other. Right. So um, so I think like really you got to pose it in terms of that question. Right. And and saying like, um, let let's accept the premise that that some people are feeling like they're not getting what they need from the national organization right like 
the the organization balloons to 60,000 members in, you know, three, four years, right? From 6,000 mostly paper members before that. Like no organization is going to be able to handle that kind of growth. And in a lot of ways, DSA uh, is more vulnerable because we have like very little money, right? Like the, the um, double-sided uh, dagger here is that like, you can you can get in to DSA really easily. It's cheap. It makes it very welcoming. But now we don't actually have a lot to work with, and uh, so we have like four and a half million dollars for sixty thousand members. And you know, my quip is that my local union with four thousand members has more money than that, right? So like, uh, so you have a real problem where people are feeling like they're not getting the support that they need. And how are we going to deal with that? Right. Like you can't just say, no, that's bullshit. Fuck you. Like just, you know, just do, don't worry about it. Um, you have to come up with some way of addressing it. And I think that you got to look at these proposals, um, as, as being the continuation of some of those debates, right. As saying like, um, all right. So how do we deal with the fact that we have, you know, a few really large chapters where probably like almost half the membership is located, but we also have, um, you know, dozens and maybe a hundred plus chapters that are like less than 300 members. Right. And they're really dependent on, uh, on who's in their chapter for, for the kinds of experience and resources they have. And, um, so, so that kind of becomes this tactical debate about how are we going to take these chapters that exist and then get them what they need as best we can. Right. And then, um, and figure out a way that we're still going to be an organization. Right. So I think like that's the central debate that's happening. Um, there's an organizational part to it and there's a financial part to it. Right. Um, it's, it's really like, you know, it's two sides of the same coin there. So uh, we have some representational shit to figure out, but we have a lot of money stuff to figure out. And, and like, oddly enough, nobody's proposing raising the dues, really. So I think like in a in a way, it's interesting because this is also asking for a consent approach to growing the resources of the organization is like the the main proposals are going to be either are we going to cut the pie differently, right? Um, and just take the resources that the national has and distribute them more towards the locals or are we going to, you know, kind of continue the policy that DSA has right now of due sharing, amend it, you know, in, in important ways and try to like get people to, um, to affirm their investment in DSA, like, you know, politically by also volunteering to give more to the organization, right? Like raise your due share or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what's conspicuous in its absence are proposals that are really single-mindedly and seriously focused on expanding the resource base of the organization. Most of the proposals, at least the contentious ones, are thinking about reallocating scarce resources. And I think that's what makes them so difficult because they're not just financial questions. They're political strategic questions because you talk about a scarce pie it's much like these debates we have in, in, in U.S. and the United States political context in, in, a, in a sea of austerity and scarce public resources. You know, money for this project means less money for that project. It's the same in DSA right now. Um, 
what do you think what do you think leads to that maybe is our socialists just not very good at thinking about <laughs> you know raising money uh, having money possessing money most of us being broke ass downwardly mobile millennials what, what's going on there i mean that's possible right i mean like you know if like you look at the social basis of dsa um there are a lot and not exclusively but there are a lot of people who are you know downwardly mobile professionals and we don't have as much experience with like collective organization. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're a little unsure about how you, you participate like that. Um, and unfortunately I think that for a lot of people, their, their first way of dealing with politics, right. Is like a moralistic one. Um, so like there, I would argue that like the, um, the, there's a few proposals like allowing people to be DSA members while paying no dues at all is in a lot of ways like a, it's, it's a moralistic argument. It's not an organizational one. And part of my problem with that is that, you know, dues are an important part of every organization and, and even groups like the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, which is a homeless person's organization. It's a dues paying organization, right? So, like, you know, I, I think that there are real political dangers to opening up our membership when somebody actually has no skin in the game. And I'm not saying that to be like an asshole, like uh, use some kind of like right wing argument. But I think that, you know, what is the bare minimum to being a, a DSA member? It's not it's not hard. So I think, you know, if if that's what's important to you, we'll we'll figure out how that's going to be part of our lives. Right. I think, you know, one of the things that socialists are bad at, I don't look again, it's probably the fact that we're downwardly mobile millennials with not a lot of expendable income. And it's tough out there, man. I mean, for me, uh, certainly I could talk about my woes and, and you could talk about yours and everyone has them. Um, but, you know, there's so many well-to-do progressives out there who are happy to cut a check to NPR once a month and to their local, you know, whatever uh, chapter of this or that or whatever. And, and they just, they don't think twice about it. Socialists, aren't great at, at thinking about funding political projects. And, um, and I don't, I don't know why that is. I think, I think the lack of funds plays a big role, but I don't think that's it. I don't think that's everything because as you mentioned, the labor movement traditionally has been awash with cash, relatively speaking to like, say the far socialist left that is anyway, enough speculation there. The, the pass the hat measure and the protect the hat measure are two things that really require a lot of explanation because that's that's the real central debate when 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 it comes to resources. Uh, talk to tell us about that. What 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 the fuck does that mean? A lot of inside baseball. Yeah, um, it is a lot of inside baseball. But uh, you know, if you're a delegate, this is going to be probably one of the biggest things coming into convention, right? So, um, build um, sponsored a uh, constitutional amendment which would give every chapter, regardless of size, a hundred bucks a month, right? Um, which is different than what we do currently. What we do right now is um, chapters that um, have, you know, an organizational account get 20% of the uh, monthly dues that their their local pays, right? So um, the, there's a good argument for that, which is that like, larger locals are going to have more money than smaller ones. Right. Um, but, um, but I, I think it, it really broad brushes the financial picture of DSA and, and really in a lot of ways, um, you have this question of what's efficient, right? Like, is it better to pool your resources or, or just to like pass them back around? Right. Um, so, so their proposal then is everybody's going to get a hundred bucks, no matter what, um, 
you know, whether you have an organizational account or not, um, you'll get a hundred bucks. It'll be a constitutional amendment. Um, and, and so, you know, like, I, I think like part of what elevates it so much is that um, there's some process questions about how it's been done. So like normally a constitutional amendment for DSA needs two thirds vote because one of the authors, um, Zach, is on the current NPC, there's a loophole that allows anything that was talked about before convention within a certain amount of time to actually lower the threshold of the vote. And they're the, this is the only proposal that did that, right? And so there's some debate about how legitimate is that. So um, that's, uh, that's going to be part of it, right? Is we have, on the one hand, like an organizational financial debate about how are we going to deal with the resources? Uh, and that's hot enough, right? But then, you know, then you add on top of it this process question of, um, well, I mean, I'll just speak for me. Why the fuck do you want to lower the threshold? Don't you want to have the same kind of basis of consent that everybody else needs? Like, that seems detrimental to the organization for me. Yeah. Um, so well, there, explain that for us because you, you kind of laid it out, but. You're, you're, you know, we're, we're trying to be objective and diplomatic here and almost quasi journalistic. So we're trying to be value neutral, but let, let's, let's really get into it here. Where does that come from? So just be really, really clear. So Zach uh, E is a member of a current member of NPC from the former Praxis Slate. He's running for NPC again under the build uh, formation. Uh, he is on NPC and the rule states that if you raise the potential of a bylaw amendment at an NPC meeting, even for like just a second, I, I presume it just has to be mentioned uh, while the NPC is in session. The threshold to get that bylaw amendment uh, passed changes, and so he's the author of this proposal. He's the only person on NPC who had the opportunity to raise this at an NPC meeting, so he took advantage of it, and now the threshold is lower. Well, and let so me this be is, fair. This is, this is part about- of the, the protect the hat. That's the protect the hat. Uh, part of the pass the hat proposal because these are two proposals, but they're meant in tandem. One is procedural, one is you know uh, organizational bylaw changes. Yeah, so so a couple of clarifications, right? Is that there are other NPC members who have organizational constitutional amendments that they proposed, but they did not use this either. Right, they just okay? they just didn't do it, right? So they yeah. didn't do it. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's not as though this was the only person that had this opportunity. So I think that that that's worth clarifying. Um, and, and, um, where this is playing out in this kind of dramatic process thing, right. Is that, um, Natalie, who's another person on the NPC has a constitutional amendment to close this loophole, right. That, um, all right, this is a holdover from old DSA, right. Like, you found something that um, you know may have had its use before, but I, it seems like it's going to have its problems now. And uh, so she proposed closing that loophole and ending that that particular privilege that NPC members get to lower the threshold of constitutional amendments. Um, so, I mean, personally, I'm in favor of that, right? It seems like I don't want NPC members to you know be able to change what it needs to what what a measure needs to pass like it should be more or less the same right but isn't it isn't it incredibly obscenely even hypocritical for someone from build who sees very uh who sees a very constrained role 
of NPC or any national level body inside the organization. Isn't it obscenely hypocritical to, or just cynical? It's straight fucking cynical. It's not hypocrisy to then use the NPC in order to uh, sort of push something through. Is, is, isn't that antithetical to the alleged values of build? Or am I, well, or am I wrong? Well, here? I'll say this, right? Like, look, um, let's assume good faith for a minute. Let's say, Hey, like we thought this was going to be popular. We wanted to make sure it gets done. So I used the thing that we were allowed to use. Okay, sure. That's fine. Like I'll disagree with that, but we can, we can say like, I can assume that's good faith. The thing that I have an actual problem is the protect the hat thing is not using that, right? The protect the hat is that um the there's the constitutional amendment proposed to close this loophole and build uh submitted an amendment to that proposal to say yeah you're right that should be closed but um we think that this should be allowed only for our resolution so we're going to put a timeline on it that means that that won't apply to what we already did that to me is bad faith that's bullshit all right like I got a real fucking problem with that. And, um, and and as much as I try to be neutral and like assume good faith, like there's no two ways about it, right? Like you said, I agree it shouldn't happen, but in this case it should because it's my thing. Like that's where I'm like, no dude, no. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think there's some really fishy stuff going on here to put it lightly. So the protect the hat amendment makes that sort of special exception that you just laid out the past the hat amendment. Let's return to that in earnest here. Cause there's some, there's some weird shit going on here, but the past the hat is really the question. They want to give a flat $100 contribution, sort of reallocating fees, dues rather uh, to locals for their various expenses. Now, again, just like I said with build previously, excuse me, and libertarian socialist caucus on the face of it, who doesn't think it's a great idea to give locals more money? Many of these people are buying various supplies. They're getting meeting space. They're paying for meeting space out of their own pockets. Uh, this job is this, – this socialism thing is fucking expensive. Like, don't I know it? I'm constantly spending money out of pocket to try to get these politics out there. Um, so yeah, on the face of it, why wouldn't, why wouldn't it make sense to give chapters more money? Um, what's the counter argument? I mean, I don't think that that's the debate is the thing, right? I think it's mm -hmm. disingenuous to say it's either this or or small chapters don't get money, right? That's mm -hmm. not how it works, right? Yeah. So, so like, I, I think like that part of the problem here is that you've come up with a conclusion and now you're finding the evidence to support it after the fact. And, um, and their conclusion is that the national is not legit and that the locals should be getting the resources primarily. And, you know, we'll, we'll figure out the way to do that. Like, I, I, I don't want to suggest that there aren't some people who legitimately believe that this is the best thing. Like, I think there are some great comrades who, who I really trust a lot and this is where they want to go and we can disagree about it and that's fine. And if they carry the day, then, then they carry the day. Right. But um, but I, I think that the, the bigger problem is that with all these things, like the devil's in the details, right? I mean, like four and a half million dollars is not a lot for 60,000 members, right? It's, it's really not. And, um, and then when someone's like, well, like what percentage should we give to the, to the locals? And I think that that, that becomes a tricky thing because you're dealing with quantity versus quality at a certain, right? Like a um, hundred bucks 
is not a lot of money for for some chapters when you give it one by one, right? Like a hundred bucks, like what am I going to do with that? Like it might do some things that are good. Like I'm not going to discount that, but um, wouldn't that money go farther when you pool it and say, okay, well actually we'll we'll you know we'll pay for something in common. We'll get our staff to create something or to support people and scaffold the organization. Right. I think that that's, that's kind of what needs to be presented as the counter, right. Is that on the one hand, we're talking about what's efficient for pooling our resources on the other. Do we just not want to do that? Right. Like that, that to me is the question because ultimately you choose to pay dues to DSA or not. Right. Like if you wanted to have a local collective then just give them your money. Right. But um, I think, you know, you start to run into this dangerous problem of, um, you know, of, of really weakening the idea that we have a common organization when you move this direction. Yeah. Yeah. A couple key members of Build have gone on record suggesting that they don't even really see a reason why we have uh, an NPC, for example, or any other kind of national organization that it's that's that it's rather useless. And let's talk about that for just a moment. We'd be remiss in failing to to mention this. There is some serious dissension in the ranks. Chris from NPC, who's part of what what we've been calling um quite fondly, no no harm, no diss intended, the old guard. Chris from the old guard has been on NPC multiple times prior prior to the boom and after the boom. And um she wrote a public letter, uh article, if you will. This isn't a status update or a tweet. It was a self-published medium article, but it had subheadings and a, an intro and a middle and an argument and an end. So I feel like it's legitimate to talk about here. It's not just gossip. And Chris had some uh, very serious criticisms leveled at some of the Praxis slash build members on NPC. What does this signal? What kind of dissension in the ranks are we looking at here and how will this play going forward? Um, yeah, so, so, um, what the article was, was Chris, uh, wrote a thing basically saying that she has serious concerns about reelecting Zach and Ravi to the NPC. They're, they're currently sitting members of the NPC and they're running for reelection. And she was saying that based off of her experience these last two years, she would recommend people not reelect them. Um, I, I think it's worth noting that this is a conversation that's happening, right? Like I tend to focus more on the objective things that create difficulties for anybody. Right. Um, and this is interesting because it's a subjective account, right? It's like, she's making an argument that people have made certain decisions, right? Um, you're presented with a thing and she is based off her experience trying to suggest that, um, these are not the best people for, for the job coming up. Right. Um, I'm not going to argue for her point or against it. I mean, I just, I think it, it's worthwhile to note that this is a thing that um, has been released publicly. Right. And um, I'm sure that people will discuss it. So it's worth knowing. Um, but I think that, you know, you should make your own decision based off that you should read it and say, does that, does that convince you or doesn't it? This is a longstanding d- disagreement inside of NPC that goes back to when RL Stevens was sitting on the NPC uh, as well. Um, and that, that, that's covered in the, in the, in the article too. So again, this is not gossip. This is some stuff that's happening and it's ongoing. But again, it really does touch on these questions. Like what, what does it mean to have people on 
a national governing body who don't believe that the national governing body ought to be playing any kind of legitimate role in the governance or the day-to-day operations of said organization. I, I again, I, look, I'm trying to be nonpartisan here. I think you, you know how we both stand on this, but I'm trying to present this in a way that like, look, if somebody can give me a compelling answer to that query, to that provocation, I'm, I'm happy to hear it. But I can't think I can't think of one uh, for myself. Yeah. And I'll say like, uh, you know, like uh, being as measured as I can about this. Right. I think that um, I think that it's really worthwhile to hear the experience of longstanding members. Right. And people who have you know done this for a while and seen DSA in all its incarnations. And um, and I think that's that's worth kind of paying attention to. Um but I also think that, you know, I personally would uh, have a little bit of a concern about how much does this help move us forward? Like, I think that people look at that article also and are like, you know, is this just kind of like shitting in the well now? Um, like, are, are we are we just um, really so internally focused? And um, and I and I get that. I think that's an important criticism. Right. We got to keep our eyes on the prize here. Um, so, you know, I, I, I would recommend that people read it. Right. And, and I think that there are some follow-up questions for sure. She, she weighs some pretty heavy accusations about a rape investigation, about, um, people's intentions and how they have represented the activity of the NPC. So, I mean, they're, they're serious things. And, um, and I, I personally can't speak to the credibility of all of it. So, all I can say is be aware that it's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. Let's talk about one more debate and then we'll wrap up by talking about what we think our vision is for DSA and how things will look going forward, given the the likely outcomes that we're going to see this weekend. Uh, we can cover this one pretty quickly. This debate between primarily Bread and Roses and Collective Power Network kind of uh, surged a couple of weeks ago and it's kind of fizzled ever since. I think primarily because uh, people have recognized that both proposals could hypothetically be passed without any major conflict. Um, what is, what's going on with this rank and file strategy being proposed by bread and roses and the other oppositional labor strategy being put forward by collective power network? Yeah. So, um, before I get into that, I'll, I'll, I'll do a little like meta thing, right? Which is that I, th- I think you're right that the conversation has fizzled. And that's in part because, um, going into this convention, you're looking at basically two blocks that, um, have some alliances, right? So on the one hand, you're going to have, um, libertarian socialists and, uh, built and, you know, maybe San Francisco slate. It's not entirely clear where they stand on some of those things. And on the other, you're going to have um, Socialist Majority, Bread and Roses, and Collective Power Network, who they, those kind of two poles broadly represent the the takes on the organization. And I think that they're having to figure out um, how are they going to be able to work with one another, right? Like they don't want to be at each other's throats, especially if they have common goals. So I think that's, that's part of why this debate has maybe settled down is because um, it's more important to present a united front, maybe going into this convention than, than to really get into this pissing match. Um, That said, the actual debate is pretty interesting. Um, If you, 
if you if you want to get into it, which is um, so so first also um, most people in DSA do not have a very strong understanding of labor, right? Like how unions work, um, the history of American labor struggles, and you know how socialists have approached it. Uh, like a lot of people don't don't have that, right? And I think that um, essentially that's what's happening is that they're having this debate about. In today's conditions, what should socialists be doing that um, that is going to make us best suited for the labor struggles that are you know that we're hoping will come? Um, and you know, again, let's let's highlight the agreement, which is that they're saying DSA has been doing great work, right? They they both agree that the Democratic Socialist Labor Commission, which is the the body nationally that coordinates DSA's labor work has been doing really good stuff, right? They want to extend what DSA is doing the so much so that both of them agree that DSA should, you know, allocate a full-time staffer to the work. So I think like, you know, before you, you start to, to look at all the, the differences, um, whatever happens there's going to be an agreement that this is valuable work and we should do more of it. Um, now, uh, now that I've qualified for like two minutes, uh, we, we can, uh, we can that's, that's just how we roll here on DPS. Man. I know, I, man. I, I think I've gone into like 15 minute qualifications. So you've got a ways to go before you're up to my level of fuckery. All right. So what's, what's the real debate here? Where, where's so, the dissension coming? So the real debate is basically this, right? Um, the bread and roses perspective that they're putting out, which is they're calling the rank and file strategy is that the best way to get involved in the labor movement is as worker activists in unions that, um, that unions, imperfect as they are, um, are the place where most workers start, right? And they look to leadership from those bodies. And the best impact you're going to have is not necessarily as a staff person working for the union, because uh, at that point, the union's your boss, right? Like you don't have full political autonomy to figure out what you're going to do as a socialist. So there's, there, basic premise is get a union job, um, find other workers who are militants, right? Um, help kind of cohere the class struggle perspective and, uh, and, and push for the fights that can lead the way. And, uh, and, you know, you might have to push against the union structure at some point, but, uh, that is the most promising. That's their argument. Okay. Um, this the, is a traditional the salt, the salting method, right? The salting is really big in things like the Socialist Workers Party of the United States in the 1960s and 70s. A lot of sort of the old Bolshevik types in the labor movement of today, uh, they skipped college and they, they became a salt and went to a, you know some factory or, or trade union sector to try to radicalize their 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 comrades and, and their their locals and what have you. Um, so there's a there's a long kind of treasured prized history of that uh, that that strategy. And to be you know I think along with Jacobin, people in Bread and Roses put out a pamphlet suggesting that socialists could go, should go out and get jobs as teachers. Actually, that was YDSA that did that. That's not. Um, that's not that's a right. Oh, you're right. Thing. You're right. That wasn't a yeah. faction. It was YDSA, but but I think it's probably not a stretch to suggest that the people who are really behind that are at least very closely aligned with the Bread and Roses sort of 
yeah jacobin group yeah. yeah yeah so so i'd say that that that's kind of been in a lot of ways the perspective that's that's guided dsa these last two years right like labor notes kind of embodies that perspective and la- the labor notes approach to the labor movement has really been highly influential in dsa's um you know budding labor work these last two years so like in a lot of ways they're what they're not in a lot of ways, they're not actually proposing that we do anything that different. They're just cohering it and uh, and saying like, there's a name for this thing. It's called the rank and file strategy. Um, there's a process to it that can be understood, and we should commit to it more seriously. Right? That probably a lot of the stuff you like is already doing that. That's kind of Bread and Rose's approach. So the the counter to that that's been offered by Collective Power, I think, is a good corrective. Right? Which is to say that. Um, private sector unionism is at the lowest it's been since even before the right to bargain, right? Um, you're talking way less than one in 10 workers now are part of uh, unions in the United States. And uh, so so how, how useful is a strategy that asks people to get union jobs in places where the labor movement is very weak? And that, that's, I think, the crux of their criticism, uh, which is a useful one. And so there's some back and forth on this about what's the best way to organize new workers. Is it through um, trying to, you know, just use the union structures as they are and try to get them to organize more? Or um, do the unions need to be changed in order for more workers to be organized? And, um, you know, and what's the best use of our time? We can't be everywhere doing everything. So we're going to have to make some choices. And that's kind of what the debate is coming down to. Right. And I suspect that there will be some spirited debates on the floor and in more informal places and settings over the weekend. So that's a pretty good grounding. People can check this out. Um, Collective Power Network has a website. Um, Bread Roses has a website. They've been putting out justifications and arguments on that basis. Um, quite a few of them are out there. I, I saw a debate between um, was it was it Charlie Post and Eric Blanc? It was kind of a, about a different a different kind of discussion there as well. I think that came out in Jack, but I'll link to that in the show notes. That's kind of useful in the ether of some of these discussions around the convention. What are some of the other things that are, are we missing? Anything as a final wrap up of of the the things to look out for and be aware of? Yeah, I'd say um, I think that. This convention is definitely going to be a convention where DSA says we're an eco-socialist organization. Ah, um, yes, that, yes. That is clear that um, there is broad um, support, right, and and deep support, too, that people want us to be do- taking up the Green New Deal, uh, like a radical version of the Green New Deal, and uh, and that the climate crisis is is critical. It's something that we have to address as DSA and probably that um, we are going to be uniquely situated to fight for it because um, this thing's getting fucking worse and we don't see any leadership really that is, uh, is moving us forward. So I think that, that we are definitely going to see the convention affirm that we're moving in an eco-socialist direction. The questions around that are going to be, What's the caveat? Like, um, there's some amendments to to the main proposal, right? About um, about criticisms of colonialism from an organization called the Red Nation. Um, they have a proposal 
um, that asks DSA to, to recognize that group's um, agenda called the Red Deal, right? Um, so, so that's, that's a, some important stuff that's going to figure into this. But in the end, you know, we're going to see DSA, um, take up a campaign probably, right? And, and start to, to think more about what is our socialist or anti-capitalist approach to addressing the climate crisis. Yeah. I've done a number of episodes on eco-socialism and the socialist approach to sort of environmental politics and the Green New Deal and the rest of it. I have my own thoughts on that. Um, but you know, it's, it's important for us to talk about this stuff. It's fuck, it's bleak, right? And if, if we don't do it, who else? So I'm excited to see where, where that goes. Um, it's just, I'm looking over some of this, this consent agenda that went out. Uh, let's see. I think we covered a lot of it. There's some, uh, there's some concern about district attorney races. I think that's probably less interesting, honestly. Is it? So I, I'm just sort of looking at some of the titles, ones that I haven't actually read up on. Uh, there've been a number, there's been a number of successes around DA races, uh, both with Larry Krasner and then Tiffany Caban in Queens, New York City. And there's some controversy about, so that actually looks like maybe that's just kind of a, a, one of the holdovers from sort of the more electoral politics driven disputes from 2017, where people seem to be okay with endorsing open socialists, but uh, the district attorney, that, that structural role is something that people are still uncomfortable with because of its connection to the, the criminal injustice system. I, I think that the the problem is is that it's going to be a very limited debate because for the most part DSA doesn't have a lot of experience with that kind of race, right? Like it's really limited to Tiffany Caban in New York, and other people are basically going to be levering, they're going to be levying um, abstract or, or political arguments, but not as much based off of direct experience. So I think that maybe that one's less important. Um, the, the resolution that I think that is going to be really important that's in the consent agenda is uh, our orientation towards um, immigrant rights work, right? That that's, that's another thing that has really broad support, like as, um, as our understanding of what's happening in these concentration camps is getting just like, it's getting so much fucking worse that um, there's been a, a, a real call for DSA to, to take up um, doing something to try to shut this thing down. Right. So, so that is another thing that has really broad support. Um, I, I don't even know how much of it is going to get debated because it's in the consent agenda, but I think it is going to be an important thing that comes out of the convention is that um, I anticipate that DSA is going to affirm that we need to have, uh, we need to be part of a national campaign to end these concentration camps and really push back against the, you know, anti-black and brown agenda of the Trump administration. And also, tech, you know, like, honestly, of the Democrats. I mean, the Democrats just, you know, gave billions of dollars to did make it. this happen. So they just you fucking know. did it after saying they wouldn't do it. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's, I think that's going to be an important thing and it's going to, it's going to have implications for how we position ourselves, you know, vis-a-vis the Democratic Party. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, we're really behind the curve on this thing. I mean, you know, with, with the immigrant rights stuff and with the environmental justice stuff, we're, we're behind the curve and I'll be straight, you know, like 
I don't suspect that we're going to come out of this convention with any kind of like um, statement about, say, open borders, for example, to say DSA is an open borders, uh, you know, organization. And this is where we stand on it. This is how it, uh, you know, this is what we think about this strategically. Here's our short term strategy, our midterm strategy, our transitional goals, our our long term strategy. This is how we mess it. You know, we're not going to see anything that detailed or nuanced. Um, unfortunately, we're just not there yet collectively as an organization. I think this lag in large part stems back to what we talked about at the beginning of our conversation today, Andrew, that there isn't a quote public forum, a public, dis, you know, a debate discussion forum with all of the troubles of this quote public kind of discourse and debate and rational conversation amongst, you know, white property owning gentlemen, cough, cough. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that's well, how I mean, that all I'd started, right? That too, um, though, that, you know, the, the other part of that is that because of the MPC being gridlocked is that it hasn't, you know, functioned as a, as an effective political leader for the organization either. So, so that's, yeah, that's been that's the right. other problem is that two parts of that are failing, right? On the one hand is that we don't have the national forum to have a productive conversation about where we need to be moving politically. And we also don't have leadership that has really taken the initiative and tried to tried to, you know, steer and and identify this as an important question. So, you know, um, but that said, I think that I, I imagine that this convention, you're right, is going to play some catch up on things we're behind on. But I do anticipate us having a clearer sense of what we are saying this is important work to be doing. And if nothing else, we'll, we'll end up with, um, with a, a sense that we are committing to doing this, right? Even if we haven't figured out all of the, the positions. And I'm pretty sure that open borders is part of one of those resolutions. So I, I think that actually we probably will come out saying that we're for yeah. open borders. But, I, hadn't, I hadn't seen you know, the language of the actual uh, pr- proposition, but again, you just sort of proclaiming the sort of mantra of open borders is very different to saying like, how does this, uh, how does this work with our strategic orientation? How we go about it, achieving that, you know, realistically in the here and now, and also as a transitional goal or an ultimate goal or what have you. And we're just not. I don't have an answer for that either. Uh, I'm not going to pretend like I do. And anyone who says they do, I don't believe them because I haven't seen anything that's worked out. The same goes with the eco-socialist debates. I just had Lee Phillips on a couple of weeks ago. I've had him on multiple times. I happen to be quite convinced by his critique of some of the more kind of um, uh, degrowth degrowth, uh, primitivist oriented model of eco-socialism. I'm more won over to this kind of quote eco-modernism, which it just gets hot. I, you know, I fucking lost patrons over this. I got, you know, angry DMs. People get really heated over these things. The reality is we're just, we're just kind of throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks right now. Nobody has any answers. Nobody knows how to operate a polity with open borders, but we know that we have a serious fucking border, uh, a problem that is produced by exclusionary borders. Right. Well, I'll nobody say, knows. I'll say this, though. No, nobody uh, knows how to solve the ecological crisis, and everybody knows that this rampant capitalist growth is a problem. And maybe growth is not is, is a bad thing. Maybe uh, we're we're just working towards this together. Um, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's cool. Um, I, I'll say this though. Uh, just one thing to push back on you. Um, 
which is that I, I hear that a lot, right? Which is there's a serious correction to to parts of the left that are like we know all the fucking answers, right? Which is a good instinct, but you know the the bad part of that is then you say we don't have any answers, and and that that's the thing that I think we got to be careful on because I think we have some answers. We don't have all the answers. Uh, we have some answers, and we have a lot of the right questions. And I think that if we, you know, if we are open and we, as we move forward, we're going to be in a pretty good position. But, uh, but I, I think that we do have to say, like, there's some things that we've seen that are working that I think can be a useful model. It's not the singular answer, but it's yeah. a answer. Yeah. yeah, we we need to have a greater tolerance for having these debates and out in the open and and. Oh boy, Andrew, I could, I could launch a hot take right now. I'd like to keep it on a B side or something. Although there's, there's, this is not going to be a B side this week. Cause I think it's really important, uh, to get this out to as many people as possible, but I have my own hot take as to why it is that people don't have a tolerance for having these difficult and contentious collective debates. And I think it has to do with the way that, uh, the, the socialist left media developed in 2016, 2017. I'll fuck it. I'm already telling you, Andrews. I might as well just tell, I'll just tell everybody. I think that with the growth of these online outlets and podcasts in 2016, 2017, they very quickly became segmented and people's Patreons grew very fast and people's listenerships and audiences grew very fast. And suddenly people found themselves with a readership, with a listenership, with an audience. And they discovered like, Hey, I can, I can make a living doing this. Hey, uh, I can hire more writers doing this. And you suddenly have to start thinking about how to make this thing that you're doing uh, economically viable. And it should be, right? I'm not knocking that. A lot of people out there who would knock that and call them careerists. No, fuck that and fuck them. If you, think, if you say that, you're wrong. If you say that about Jacobin, I disagree with you. Uh, that's not what I'm saying here. But what I'm saying is that it is a reality of trying to stay afloat financially in this fucking horrific capitalist market that we live in. And so people were were not challenged in the way they would have been had some of these outlets had more of a stable financial, social, and kind of cultural uh, a backbone to them. Um, and so people, when when shows like, like my own, all right, like I put myself out there, shows like my own uh, challenge some of the more kind of widely held views, people don't look at that as like, hmm, here's something for me to chew on for a little while. I'm not sure I agree with it, but let me just let me just chew on it and see what I think. People instead take that as an assault. Like, what? How dare you say this thing to me? That is so far outside the mainstream and I feel violated uh, for you having uh, sort of, uh, you know, I'm going to block you and I'm never going to listen to you again. I'm going to shit post you for the next three years, which people are still doing, by the way. Well, you know, like, I think like, well, I mean, first of all, it sounds like you're talking about materialism as though yeah, there's some right. sort of relationship there. <laughs> right. uh, but, you know, like the, the U.S. situation is unique because our media landscape is so fucked. I mean, like, you know, in other countries, like, you know, the, the profit motive isn't as much of a, a part of, um, of media creation, right? Like there, there's some uh, greater ability to to withstand right knowing that if you if you have a hot take it's not gonna it's not gonna fuck up your your um income right so so i think you're right about that um and and generally i'd say that 
like our media strategy definitely needs to be more uh, foregrounded as part of our socialist project here. Like it, it's a huge fucking deal. And uh, I think it's usually an afterthought for a lot of people. Yeah. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to make people more amenable to ideas that challenge their own uh, such that people can contend with things that they don't agree with, but not sort of lose their shit over it. Right. That, because I think, again, right, like having these these open discussions, it's important. Even if I don't change your mind, you'll come out of it with, uh, hopefully, I think, stronger defenses of your positions. And I want my opponents to have the strongest defense of their positions that they can possibly muster. And I certainly want to have the strongest positions uh, for my own uh, stances or, or strongest arguments for my own stances. And the, the, the icing, the chilling effect that I've seen take place over the past couple of years has really pre prevented these discussions from happening. But um, feel free to share your thoughts on that. We're, we're getting off on a tangent, but I, yeah. but, but we are trying to think through like, why is it that we are so, so woefully behind the curve on some of these just incredibly urgent questions like eco-socialism, like a green new deal, like uh, the, the immigrant uh, immigrant rights question. How do we, overturn these horrific realities that we're that we're living under right now um i don't know i don't know yeah i mean i, I you know the only the only thing that i would i would uh disagree with you on is that like i i worry less about people listening or reading and disagreeing right if they disagree fine good you know, like they'll be fine um I, I the people that i'm more worried about are the people that are then not producing content or, or not stirring the pot. Right. Um, like that's the thing that I worry more about. Um, if you're like, Oh shit, it turns out that I lose Patreon supporters when I talk about this unpopular thing. And then you're like, I guess I can't do that anymore. That to me is a way bigger problem than if someone's like, yeah, you're a fucking idiot about this, but whatever. Like, I, I don't really care. Um, you know, like there's like a, a minorly democratic aspect to that is, We'll see what takes. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to, we're going to see more resolution to this in 2019. And if we don't all get swallowed by the sun, you know, uh, 2021 and then 2023, and then hopefully we're so big and so active and things are so pressing that fuck it, we can do this every summer. Wouldn't that be fun? Anyway, any parting words for, the listeners out there, we've been, we, this was a long one, but it was an important one. What's your vision for DSA? What kind of role would you like to see this organization play in this wider uh, progressive socialist uh, wave that we're seeing right now? I mean, I, I'll say I have a pretty modest vision for DSA right now, right? Which is um, like, as somebody that's active in my chapter, I'd love to have a national organization that is cutting down on the work that you have to do so you can do the political work, right? Like, I think um, solving some of those organizational things so it's not like, um, fuck, how do I set up the website? Like, uh, we got to do that ourselves. Like, that's the stuff that I, I think, like, really should not weigh into the life of this organization so much, right? If we're able to um, to centralize to the extent that, like, we can get to doing the political work, I think that, that that's really the thing that's going to be important, right? That um, I'm open to developments as they happen, right? And, and you know, history is going to give us a sense of what's possible, 
But um, I think, honestly, um, I don't want us all to be like building the wheel in parallel, right? Like someone can figure that out a little bit better, probably. Um, so, you know, that's that's my very modest vision for DSA is like, um, we're, we're not a, a collection of individuals here, right? We're actually greater than the sum of our parts if we, if we want to be. And, um, and, and I, I look forward to it, man. I've been, I've been fucking inspired by a lot of stuff. There's been a lot of times locally and nationally where I, I like my cynical ass was like, yeah, that ain't happening. And then I'm like, oh shit, it fucking happened. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. so, um, so I, I have a pretty optimistic view of DSA and, um, you know, I think there's some traps that we got to watch out for, um, I think that the the 2020 election is probably going to be a bigger deal and we got to be real careful not to get sucked into like a neoliberal Democrat if, if Bernie loses. Right. But, um, but other than that, I think, I think I feel pretty good about stuff. We would be remiss if we didn't push your, your convention proposal. You've got a proposal out. I, I, I think it's a great idea and I'd like to give you space to talk about it. One final pitch for that proposal. What's what's up with this Bernie or bust uh, proposition? Yeah, so um, so this is the resolution I wrote, which is um, look, we we endorse Sanders, right? Um, you know, agree, disagree. That's where we are. Uh, what we ought to do is be prepared for what's coming up in the future, and we know what what that is, right? Um, either Sanders is going to get the Democratic um, nomination, or he's not. I mean, I, I think it's going to be fucking hard. I think that um, all of the the forces are stacked against them. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm saying it's going to be a lot of fucking work if that's going to happen. And DSA is going to have to be ready to deal with that situation that we know is coming, right? Um, so we're going to we know who the uh, who the other Democrats are. We know that they are neoliberals that don't align with what we want to do. And, and I'd also say that we, we know what got us into this situation that where Trumpism has been so, you know, pervasive, right. Is that people fucking hate neoliberal Democrats, right. That's part of the reason why socialists are doing well also is because the center can't hold. And I don't think that that's the solution. So I think it's going to be really important that we say that if Sanders doesn't, you know, like get awarded the democratic nominee then uh then dsa was going to say we're not going to back another democrat for the election that that's pretty much it right if you as an individual feel like i you know that's your responsibility that you have to deal with it then fine that's your fucking choice you you do that right i, I don't come with you to the ballot box but i think what's important is that as an organization it's going to send a signal what we choose to do here and i think that remaining independent is going to be the most important thing for DSA to do um, if if things shape up that way. Yeah, I agree. Um, I tend to to side with the more the pragmatists on this. Um, if you're in a swing state, hold your nose, pull the lever, keep Trump out of office. But that's I don't see what the fuck that's got to do with DSA, right? Like I I don't I don't see us uh, DSA. I, I keep saying us, we. I'm actually currently uh, my my dues are lapsed, folks. I'm gonna re up soon, but uh, I try to stay as neutral as I can. I say we and us when I talk about DSA because I recognize like this is the vehicle for 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 legitimate democratic socialism in this country right now, and it's the force to be reckoned with, and and. 
whether or not I'm a, a soldier in the movement. I've been a soldier for the past decade in various organizations and movements. And, um, I, I, Hey, shouts out to the people who, 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 who spend 20 to 40 hours of extra unpaid work, unpaid hours of work uh, in DSA. I'm, I'm just not doing that right now. I'm doing this, but we, we DSA us, uh, what's that got to do with us? If, if you go and pull the lever for Joe Biden to keep Trump out of office, nothing. So I think that's an easy question. You think it'll pass? I, you know, I feel pretty good about it. Um, I, I feel like uh, the consent agenda, it got roughly 50% approval, which I I was kind of surprised that it did as well as it did. Um, and, and that's for people that said we're for this without even needing to debate it, right? Um, so there's probably plenty of people that were like, I, I think this is the right approach, but it would be worth debating. So I feel pretty good about that, right? It made it into the important debates that we're going to actually have on the floor. Um, so we had to pick all the delegates had to pick. There's too many resolutions. We can't debate them all. So which ones are we going to prioritize? And, uh, and this one made it right. So I'm glad. And, uh, we'll hear kind of what happens on Friday because, that's when the resolution is going to be heard. Um, so I, I feel pretty optimistic, right? I think I think that um, it's taking the right approach in terms of saying, um, look, what we're all we're saying is what we're not going to do, and uh, and we'll be flexible about what we will do. I mean, I've got my opinions, but fuck it, you know. The most important thing is uh, we're doing kind of like a Gandalf, you shall not pass kind of thing here. Um, we're holding back the worst of it. Um, so there's that. And, uh, and also, you know, don't downplay your role. You're, you're not, maybe not the soldier in the movement, but you're kind of like the quartermaster now, right? (laughs) I'm doing the best I can, man. I think that we need to have a division of labor, to be honest. I really do. And that spiel I went on, you know, like 20 minutes ago was kind of a a pitch for that. Like, I really do want to push people to take this stuff seriously. I know a lot of people have, have bowed out of podcasts altogether because they just sort of see it as this kind of factionalism and this kind of dilettantism, these people sort of spouting their views, um, in a, in an unmoored way. And I, and I, I look at, I take a lead very conscientiously from the socialist and left media sphere over there in the UK because I just, I think they're much more grounded and much more rooted in the, in the movements and, and, and holding people to account and having open and sometimes contentious debates. Um, of course, you know, my, my UK listeners would say, Adam, you've, you've got your rose colored glasses on, mate. Uh, <laughs> and well, maybe know, I do. Like, maybe it's, it's like, always, uh, uh, yeah. Nothing, nothing's ever as good from afar or as bad from up close, right? That's so. right. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, everybody check these two articles out. I think they're still relevant. They came out a couple weeks ago. I'll, they'll be up in the show notes. Uh, come back after this convention and, and let's, let's talk about what did happen and, and how this organization and the left in general is going to, going to move forward in a productive way. Andrew Snattinger, thanks again for, for coming on DPS, man. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.